told you last week, if you're here, about uh, during the Great War, the Times of London ran an, uh, an article called What is Wrong with the World? And they invited famous authors and journalists and intellectuals of the day to write essays in response to that question, right? We, we are living in this world that's falling apart. It's the, world, the, the war to end all wars, right? What's wrong? What's happened? And this was during a time, we're going to talk about this in a minute, this was at the, the height of the rise of humanism. Faith had been shelved. God had been proclaimed dead. So now we live in this brave new world where there isn't faith and books and objective moral values to tell us what's right and wrong. So now we're asking the question, kind of for the first time it seems, what is wrong with this world? And one famous Roman Catholic author, G.K. Chesterton, wrote into the paper and said, Dear Sir, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world, I am. Yours sincerely, Gilbert Kenneth Chesterton. And he was right. What is wrong with the world? I am. What is the heart of the problem? It's my heart. So what I want us to do now is um, just take a little trip, a little journey through a few different worldviews. And we're going to ask this question, as the Times of London did all those years ago, what is wrong with the world? And we're going to see, um, and I, I'm hope, I hope that I'm being fair to some of these different perspectives, we're going to see their answers, and we're going to see how they square with what God reveals to us through his servant, James. All right? So, strap yourself in. Uh, I've got five different perspectives that I want to look at. And the first perspective is that of humanism. So, secular humanism is the air that we breathe today. That's the, the culture that we live in, in Australia, in the West. It's post-enlightenment, um, post-faith, post-religion, post-Christendom, secular humanism. The governments that uh, oversee us, the media that informs us, all of this is the, probably the, the teachers that educate us are humanist. And um, humanism basically is the assertion that we are all that there is. There is nothing beyond us. Um, there is no God in heaven. There is no uh, life after death. There is nothing more than what we can receive through our five senses. And, and the, the great hope of humanism is that uh, hum- humanity has the potential to overcome every ill. Humanity has the potential. If we can just unlock the potential of humanity, then we will see peace on earth and we will see enlightenment. We will see the cure of all diseases. And, and the, the, the great peak of the optimism of humanism was in the last century. It, it kind of got up to a boil in, the, in Victorian times and then... Um, and then towards the end of last century, it started to wane a little bit as people started to see that maybe there wasn't much substance to the hope. But there was great hope. If we can just rally together, we will overcome. So in answer to the question, what is wrong with the world, the humanist says ignorance is what's wrong with the world. Ignorance. If we can overcome ignorance, then we will see joy and peace and prosperity and all these things. And the height of ignorance to the humanist, the height of ignorance is faith in God. 
faith of any kind, right? That someone would, would try and follow and worship and be told what to do by some kind of fairy in the sky is the height of ignorance. And for the humanist, at least in our culture, the most ignorant of the ignorant is me and you, Christian. So the great hope of humanism is, is if we can just overcome ignorance, and that means if we can just get rid of foolish beliefs, we will see peace. And one of the great anthems of humanism that some of you guys love and I think is irritating and naive is John Lennon's Imagine. Right? Here's a couple of lines from it. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Right? What he's saying is, there, imagine there's no God. We just erase that concept. There's no eternity. There's no objective anything. It's just you and me. He says later in the song, imagine there's no religion. And just people living in harmony. That was the great hope of humanism. Religion is a great evil, and without it, we would all be singing kumbaya together. And to some people, it sounds very alluring, and maybe it does to you. Maybe you're here today, and that's kind of where you're at. The problem with this assertion is history, verifiable history. The irony is that the the humanist who values above all other things facts is undone by the facts. The 20th century, the greatest humanist century that there's ever been, is also the bloodiest century in human history. And the two great experiments in humanism, right? The idea, if we just get rid of God, everyone will get along just fine, and we will prosper. That idea was put to test in Russia and in China, and in the 20th century, they those governments, those humanist governments, put to death 60 million people apiece. The fruit of humanism, the fruit of getting rid of that God idea is not peace. It's not harmony. It's not imagine. It is unfettered death. Unfettered because now there is no judge over me. Now, there is no objective moral value. Who's to say that murdering people is wrong? Think about it. If there is no God, then there is nothing objective. You can't tell me what's right and wrong. And if you have enough people under your thumb, then you can do devastating damage. So the humanist says, what's wrong with the world? It's ignorance. And we've seen the fruit of humanism in the death of hundreds of millions of people makes the Holocaust look like playground. So there's humanism. There's, there's one idea. It's an idea, and it's out there today, and it's the, as I say, it's the, it's the prevalent view. There's humanism. What about Marxism? Again, we're going back into last century. Marxism, the great, the great belief of Marxism is that what's wrong with the world is that we are ruled by morons. Okay, we're ruled by, what's a non-swear word? We're ruled by tyrants. The ruling class have us under their thumb. 
the people who own lands and have money, they're oppressing the working man. And if the working man could be in authority, then we would see peace on earth, we would see prosperity, we would see uh, harmony. Now, the, the Marxist was right to say that we need trade unions. We need people to defend the working classes because it's true. The rich guys are tyrants. They will take advantage of you. They will pay you as little as they can. They will try and feather their own nest. They will, and they do. The problem with their theory was that as soon as you get the the proletariat in power, as soon as you get the working man in power, he turns into the monster, right? And the reason he turns into the monster is because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And we've all got the same heart. It is astonishing to me to look back in history and see the greatest champions of freedom for the people turned into the greatest dictators and tyrants. How is that possible? It's because the problem is in the heart and all of us are painted with the same brush. Talking about the 20th century humanism and, 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 and Marxism, the, one of the great keys that was lost, just lost, it, it dropped out of our pockets, went down the drain, it was lost. One of the keys to understanding human nature was found in Genesis chapter 3. It's the fall of mankind. It's our corporate ownership of sin. It's the fact that all of us are born into sin. It's original sin. It's what the Reformed tradition calls total depravity. Not that, not that we're incapable of doing anything good, but that every atom of our being is tainted with sin. And if you doubt that at all, just look around, watch 30 minutes of TV and read some history. Or have children. <laughs> so the Marxist says, what's wrong with the world? Well, it's the ruling classes. Then you put the working classes in play and they do exactly the same thing. Humanism, Marxism. We've got consumerism. What's wrong with the world? Consumerism. Answer, people don't have enough stuff. If people just had more stuff, the world would be a better place. If people just had more stuff, the great faith of the consumerist is that stuff will satisfy us. That the purpose of life is to consume and be satisfied with what we consume. Again, I hate to sound like a broken record, but just history proves this wrong. Remember, if you're here in 2014, we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes. There you have King Solomon He's got 300 wives, he's got 700 concubines, he can have as much sex as he wants with as many people as he wants in as many different ways as he wants, right? Just only limited by his imagination. He has more money than any other ruler on the face of the earth. Nothing is withheld from him. His word is law. And he spends all of his book in Ecclesiastes, and you really should read it if you haven't, he spends a whole book saying... I'm not satisfied by this stuff. I've got everything any man could ever want and it's not enough. Satisfaction and wholeness and peace is like chasing the wind, he says. 
And we've seen this over and again. Was it Jim Carrey who said something like, I wish everyone could get to the, the top of their field, win, win the, the biggest awards so that they could see that those things don't satisfy, something like that. We've seen this over and again with people who we put on pedestals as those who have reached the height of celebrity and then commit suicide. Why? Because they found nothing there of any substance. Your problem and my problem is not that we don't have enough stuff. It's that we try to cram the emptiness that we feel with that stuff. And the consumerist is wrong. It will not bring us peace or joy or enlightenment or anything of substance. In fact, James says it in this, we will get to chapter 4, by the way. This is just intro. We, we don't have any time restraints anymore. Evening service. Get comfy. But he says it here in, in chapter 4, and he's talking to the church, so he's talking to you and me. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. It turns out that the great hope of our, of, of our generation, of our culture, is the very thing that causes us pain. The great hope that if we can get what we desire and keep working and working to buy the stuff that people tell us will make us happy, it turns out that that's the very thing that causes us pain. And so we get on this cycle, right? We're told that it'll make us happy. We try and get it. We see what others have, so we covet. We can't get what we want, so we quarrel and fight. We kill. And so that makes us feel terrible. So we try and fill that space with getting something. You can see, the, you can see the, the wheel that we're running on. I'm sorry, but consumerism isn't the answer. Neither is Marxism and neither is humanism. What about idealism? Idealism has more going for it. Idealism is the belief that what's wrong with the world is just everything that's happened before us. This is very popular with our generation because we've stopped reading history sometimes. And so we don't get it. We don't get that everyone's always thought this way. All right. But the idea is that that this is our time, that all of history has led up to this point, and this generation is going to rise up over all of the others, and we're going to usher in a time of peace and prosperity and harmony. And I remember being a, a big part of this because I was turning 18, 19 at the turn of the millennium. So it wasn't just the kick that you get from a new decade or a new century. It was like, this is a new millennium. If anything's going to happen, it's going to happen now. I remember as a 19-year-old, uh, yeah, coming into the new millennium, and, and I became a Christian at, when I was 19, and I was sort of ushered into this big movement at the time, very popular in Christian circles for young adults and youth, that this is our time. This is the generation. This is, God is going to finally do something great through us. And the reason he's going to do it through us is because everyone else is screwed up until this point. And what we failed to see was that it's just a cycle. The millennials are thinking the same thing about me now that I thought about you guys then, right? Now, I love that idealism, by the way. I, I love that with our interns during the week, I get to hang out with 
millennials who think that great things are going to be done through them. I love the optimism, and we should be optimistic about what God can do, but not about what we can do. So idealism fails because it just says the same thing with every new generation. Everything before was bad, everything new is good, and it keeps failing. Last of all, I want to talk to you about ritualism. Ritualism. You could pile a whole bunch of worldviews into this, a whole bunch of religions into this. You could put in Hinduism, although Hinduism is just like a, a patchwork quilt. I, like, you, you really have to ask every individual what they believe to get an idea of what each individual Hindu believes because they have a, a broad range of beliefs, much of which is irreconcilable. Anyway, that's another sermon. But what they do believe for sure is that what's wrong with the world is that we're not doing the right rituals. In order to bring peace and harmony and balance into the world, you need to say the right prayers, you need to pray to the right shrine. You could put Islam in this category. The peace of Allah comes when we are obeying his law. Every jot and tittle of it in the world, everyone doing that will bring the peace of Islam. You could also put Christianity in this category when you have Christianity that has had the gospel taken out of it. This is what you're left with. You're left with a system of rites and rituals, and it's the case with all of these. That what they have in common is this. If we do the right thing, then we can manipulate God to bless us. What ritualism does is, is take God from up here and us from down here and switch them over. Now God is in my debt because I've been to church every week this year and I've said my prayers, I've taken communion and unlike those others who come at five o'clock in the afternoon once every few weeks, I'm committed. Now commitment isn't synonymous with ritualism or dead religion but Ritualism has that kind of flavor. God owes me something. It's an effort to manipulate God to bless us, to make my life okay. It's actually very kind of obsessive compulsive in that way. As long as I do all the right things in the right order, then there will be peace and control and harmony in my life. Very attractive to anxious people. Well, ritualism fails because it is a, has a fundamental misunderstanding of the, our place in the universe. We are not over God. He does not owe us anything. And what's more, we don't earn any favor with him by doing things in the right order, saying the right words, kneeling in the right position or whatever it is. So what all these five perspectives and worldviews have in common, and you could have 555, there's probably limitless versions of them, what they all have in common is fatal. They all fail to reckon with human sin and brokenness, total inability and total depravity. They all fail to recognize that key without which you cannot understand human behavior. Every one of the, the proponents of these worldviews got to their deathbed and just thought, why didn't it work? Because every one of them has failed numerous times. 
Why didn't it work? I was so sure about this. I'm so, so sure I had the formula, right? Get rid of God and replace it with him, right? The reason it didn't work is multitudinous reason, but one of them is it fails to deal with the fact that we're all broken. So it fails to deal with the reality of human brokenness and sin and all of those worldviews have in common the fatal flaw, which is pride. All of them. It's pride that drives the humanist to say, if only we could do this, then everything would be perfect. Right? It's the height of pride, right? Humans are so amazing that everything would be perfect if we could just overcome ignorance. The same is true of the ritualistic religions. It's pride that says, if I do the right things in the right order, God will bless me. Bless me. Pride, nothing less. And the sin at the root of that Genesis 3 event that broke us all, is pride. Pride is at the root of all of our problems. So, if the problem with the world is in the heart, then the problem with the heart is pride. That's what's right down deep at the root. And pride leads us, when we're looking through the, 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 um, the lens of pride, if God isn't gracious to us as we repent and removes it from us, what we see through that lens of pride is a world turned upside down. We cannot have the right view of man and we cannot have the right view of God. We cannot understand ourselves. We cannot understand him when we have that blindfold of pride. So pick up James chapter 4. We're going to see how, how this looks. How does it look? And remember, throughout this whole chapter, James is not speaking to the infidels out there who are going out and drinking and eating burgers and that guy just got pizza and not being in church where they should be. He's not talking about them. He's talking about us. He's talking about the church. The problem with the world is not out there. It's in here and in here. This is what he says to us. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. First of all, what's he not saying? He's not saying you can't do business. He's not saying you can't make plans. He's not saying you can't try and go and make some money somewhere someday. He's not, that's not the point. Like his brother Jesus, the point isn't all of the details in the parable. It's the meaning behind it. And his meaning is this. You don't get it. You don't understand yourself and you don't understand God. The reason you boast about doing great things is because you don't know that you're a mist. I tell you what, the thing that scares me the most is not death or even the process of death. 
it's being forgotten. Here's the truth. 100 years from now, almost no one will know who you are and what you did. That scares me. Almost no one will know your name. Almost nothing that you did will have be recorded in any meaningful way. And no one will care that you ever lived. And much, in a much shorter time than 100 years, you will be laid out in a box in your best clothes, made up with makeup, and dropped in the ground. The reality that James wants us to see, if we're going to understand what's wrong with the world, if we're going to understand the nature of our human existence and the nature of who God is, he says, first you need to know you're a mist. You are a vapor. You appear for a little while and then you're gone. You vanish. Come for an uplifting message tonight. I'm feeling good. Now, remember, he's telling us this because he loves us. And he wants us to experience real joy and not the plastic variety that's being offered to us constantly. He says, you need to know that you're a mist. You are not sovereign. You are not ruling and reigning over all things. God is. And so he says, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. He says, God is sovereign over your life. God will determine when you vanish. And you can eat as much kale as you like, but God is ultimately the determiner of how long you live. If the Lord wills, we will live. And if he doesn't, then we won't. And he doesn't owe us anything. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So it's not just life and death. It's what we do. It's what we achieve. Whether we go to such and such a city and earn some money there is up to God. Ultimately, he determines if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. There is only one sovereign, and it's not us. There is only one Lord, and it's not you. There is only one God, and it's not me. We're a mist. That's what we are. So James says, if you're going to understand anything, you need to have these things in place. You need to put the world right side up. God is creator. You are creature. God is sovereign. You are vapor. And anything less than that full orb understanding of who God is and who we are is evil, he says. That's not a mistranslation. That's not the right. Evil. All such boasting is evil. This doesn't mean that you have to go around and if you say, oh, I feel like I'm going to get Subway for lunch today, you don't have to say, oh, if the Lord wills. It's not, it's, that, that's ritualism. That's not what he's interested in. He's interested in your heart. Does your heart look into the, into the rest of your life and into eternity and see God as sovereign over all of it? Or do you see yourself as self-determining Lord of your own life? 
So James looks around and he says, what is wrong with the world? He says the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. What is wrong with the world? Pride in the heart of man is what's wrong with the world. What is wrong with the church? Ibid. What is wrong with the church is pride in the heart of God's people. It's him, it's, it's us who he's addressing here. It's the church that he's saying all such boasting is evil. It's the church who he's saying, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill, church. It's our pride that is responsible for so much of our brokenness. If you've ever been hurt by the church, I bet you, you can trace it back to human hearts and likely pride therein. And so he says, pick, up, pick it up again with me, he says in, in verse 4 and 5, you adulterous people. He doesn't pull any punches, does he? You know, you know who else doesn't pull punches? Jesus. He's got about five times as much tough stuff in the Gospels as he does tender stuff. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? God is jealous for us. In this room right now, he is jealous. Remember the distinction between envy and jealousy? Envy is, that's a really nice car. I want that car. It's not my car, but I would like to have that car. That's what causes quarrels and strife and murder. God isn't envious. He's jealous. Jealousy is when you want what belongs to you. If you are married, you should be jealous for the body of your husband or your wife. It is yours and not anybody else's. That's why adultery is so wrong. Someone has taken something that belongs to you. And that's why James says, you adulterous people. You are sharing your heart with other gods. And God has made his spirit, spirit to dwell within your hearts, and so he, he, he pines after it. He wants it. He desires it. He wants it for himself. He doesn't want to share it with any other. So the question is, and I'm running out of time, the question is, James, thank you for the beatdown, but what do we do with this? In this, ch in this church, we believe that God's word is objectively true. It has authority over us. 
It is objective in its authority. We don't pick and choose what we receive and what we reject. It is above us. It is our highest court of appeal. It tells us the truth. So the truth is, what James has said to us tonight is true of us. And there's no way around it. What do we do with that? All of the world's problems can be traced back to my heart. What do I do with that? One way out of this, one way to kind of assuage our conscience is to take the ritualistic route and say, well, I'm going to start doing my best to pay back my debt. That's one, that's one way you could go. It's not one that we would recommend. James gives us the beautiful, succulent, delicious truth that I want us to grab a hold of now. Now that we've heard all that's wrong, I want us to grab a hold of this. Verse 6, the first part of it. He says, but he, God, gives us more. What's that word? You don't have to speak up. There's not many of you. Grace. Thank you, James. A select group of morons throughout church history have accused James of not having a theology of grace. Well, he does, and he just puts it very succinctly. In response to your adultery, God gives more grace. This is scandalous. It's scandalous, right? It's scandalous that you could be an adulterer and God sees your adultery and doesn't just reject you. Get out of my house. You've been unfaithful. Every right to do that. That would be just. And instead he sees us in our adultery in the, in the middle of it and he gives us more grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. Precisely because you don't deserve it that makes it grace. This is where the ritualists get it wrong. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Otherwise, it's not grace. But, having said that, let's just enjoy that for a moment. That is a sweet truth. In response to our sin and brokenness and adultery and pride and boasting and evil, God gives us more Grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, an adulterous wretch like me. But I do want us to avoid a tendency that is growing in Christianity today. Let me just outline this for you so that you can see it because it's prevalent. It's prevalent in churches and in Christian authors and in theology. And this is the tendency. The tendency is to... Stop reading halfway through that verse. I am a sinner. Jesus is my saviour. Thank you, Jesus, for being my saviour. If that is your full understanding of the gospel, then you don't understand the gospel. Is that, if that is your full experience of the Christian life, then you don't understand the Christian life. You're not living the Christian life. There is a growing movement that that sees Jesus as saviour only. 
But Jesus isn't only Savior. Jesus is our Savior and Lord. He is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, but he's also the ruling and reigning Lord of the universe. He will forgive your sins because he, his blood is sufficient to cover your sins, but he will also call you to take up your cross and follow him, right? He will bear the cross on your behalf and know your sin and, and take on your sin and be your substitutionary, atoning sacrifice, but he will also turn to you and say, now take up your cross. We need to be aware of this. If someone's understanding of the gospel is only I'm a sinner and Jesus saves me, and there isn't an ongoing, persevering, daily life of repentance and faith and perseverance, then they haven't understood it fully. And you need to be the one who says there's more to it than this. So let's not be too eager to say, yes, I'm a wretch, but Jesus saved me. Praise the Lord. There's more to it than this. And James is just about to tell us, all right? This gets pretty heavy, but again, this is for our good, all right? So you're about, you're about to be told stuff that's going to challenge your pride, and we've seen that pride is our biggest problem. So... Rather than hardening your heart and protecting your pride, just lay it open and ask God to do some surgery. Right? Here's what James says. He gives us more grace, verse 6. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives favor to the humble. Submit yourselves. Underline that if, you, if, you, if you'd like to. Submit yourselves then to God. Why? Because he's Savior and he's Lord. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to to gloom, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. If your experience of church, and God forbid that it's your experience of this church, but if, if broadly speaking, your experience of, of church is one of laughing and dancing and clapping, then you haven't experienced the Christian life, not in its full or deep, rich meaning. Because God does not just want you to be happy and clappy. He wants you to grieve he wants you to mourn. He wants you to take that laughter and turn it to mourning. Take that joy and turn it to gloom. Why? Verse 10, humble yourselves, wail, weep, mourn. Repent in dust and ashes. Why? So he'll lift you up. Verse 6, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. A better translation is shows grace, gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. Those of us in this room right now who are hardening our hearts and holding on to our pride and wanting to be the Lord of our own life, he opposes you. He doesn't just ignore you. He opposes you, withholds his grace from you, and pours it out on the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he 
will lift you up. So there is a joy that you can experience which is contrived and plastic and faith and is prevalent in churches today, which relies on the right crescendo and the right lighting. There is a a plastic joy that you can experience in the short term or there is a deep and abiding joy that comes when the Lord's hand itself lifts you up. And most often, he lifts you up out of the ashes of contrition, of repentance. What does David say? Is it Psalm 51 where he says, oh, a, um, a wounded and, and contrite heart you will not despise? God loves that. He loves it when we mourn, when we grieve our sin. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are those who mourn. When it comes to the the brokenness that we see in the world and in the church, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And at the root of the heart, the, the blackest section of our depravity is pride. And God wants to kill it. He really does. In our group here tonight, this little gathering of his people, he wants to mortify it. He wants to kill it. He wants to stamp it out. And he wants, to, he wants our response to seeing it, to be mourning and weeping and grieving. And then he wants to finish the process of cleansing by giving us more grace and lifting us up. Here's the picture I want you to have. The Christian life is one of those big, tall ships. I remember my dad's here tonight. I remember going with him and my mum and my brothers uh, to see the tall ships. I think it was in the... In the in the bay. I just remember being small and we had to get up before it was light. And that was irritating. But it was cool seeing these fleet of ships. I don't know if it was the Young Endeavour or whatever it's called. There were all these ships coming in. And, and these, sh- these massive wooden ships, they make no sense. Right? They should not float. They shouldn't be able to navigate because they're, they're enormously tall. And anything that tall, if you put it on the water, should just fall over, shouldn't it? If you put a thing made out of wood, really tall, and have massive sails that catch the wind, as soon as the wind blows, they should fall over. And when it comes to our Christian lives, if we have massive sails of grace and praise and joy and, and thanksgiving, and that's all we have, our boat will fall over, but... If we have the ballast, if we have the ballast of knowing our sin and experiencing grief and contrition and repentance and confession, then that, that ship will sail strong onto the shores of eternity. So that's what I want tonight. For the rest of our time, I want us to live in that tension That is the tension of the Christian life. God is great and I'm a wretch. God gives grace and he calls me to mourn and weep and grieve and repent. 